This is the story. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands have just marked for salvation. fog machine and everything to start up. I'm so disappointed. There's a great way to start. Leave your notes out there and get ready to walk up without your sermon notes. How's that? Well, good morning, everybody, or good good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing? All right. Uh, so after that really smooth start, I just want you to know I'm really excited to be here. If you're looking at your sermon notes, I am not Tome. I promise that. Uh, because of COVID, Tom was unable to uh, preach today, and so uh, I got the call, you know, going to the bullpen, here I am. Uh, but I just want you to know, it is always a privilege to be standing here, so as much as I, I know Tom would love to be here, I'm super grateful that uh, I was given the opportunity to do this, and so uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be uh, standing here in front of you. If you know Tom, uh, he has mentioned often his affection for the musical Hamilton. And let me just say one other thing, because I, uh, you know, my wife was here last service, and she's actually helping me get ready for some other things this morning. But, uh, you know, one of the things that Kelly uh, often prays when I come up here, and I would, I would encourage you to uh, pray for the pastors in the same way, but she always prays for me that that uh, when, as I preach, that the Lord will fix the words when they leave my mouth so that they are correct by the time they hit your ears. And I told her today, I doubly am hoping she will do that since I am preaching Tom's message. And you'll hear Tom's voice through this. Uh, I'm making no pretense. This is, this is Tom's message that he, that he prepared. And, and I know he would love to be here delivering, uh, this message to you. And again, it's, it's a privilege for me to be that one, uh, bringing this message to you. But we know that Tom has this affection for the musical Hamilton. And so it wasn't surprising to me when I got his notes and I saw that he was using, uh, Hamilton as an opening illustration. And, Trust me, I tried really hard to come up with a better football illustration, but I couldn't. So, Tome, you win, all right? But in that musical Hamilton, one of the best and probably uh, most known songs is the song, It's Quiet Uptown. And this song takes place during a point in the musical where Alexander Hamilton has publicly confessed his adultery and Hamilton and his wife, Eliza, are grieving the loss of their son who was killed in a duel. And in this song, Hamilton and his wife manage to reconcile their marriage amidst their grief. And in the climactic moment of that song, Eliza takes her husband's hand and the cast sings forgiveness. Can you imagine forgiveness? Because let's face it, it's a beautiful moment because few things are as beautiful to us as forgiveness. 
Think about that. Forgiveness is the heart of our faith. So how do we deal with the fact that something might be unforgivable? This weekend, after several weeks of Easter-related sermons, we are returning to the sermon series, Servant Heart, Kingdom Mind. In February, we kicked off this series with a journey into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as told through the Gospel of Mark. And today, I'm going to be finishing out Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, and I'm going to be teaching on one of the most difficult passages, of course, in the Bible on what has been called the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. Lucky me. I'm going to walk through several different viewpoints on how to understand this passage because difficult passages like this, they don't always have that perfect clarity that we sometimes desire. But I will do my best to help us all process this passage together. This chapter breaks out into two separate scenes, verse 20 to 30, and then verses 31 to 35. And so in this first scene, we learn about this unforgivable sin. And we read this, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebel. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless his fir he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. In case you missed the earlier sermons from the Gospel of Mark, the context for these verses is very important. Even though we are only three chapters into the Gospel of Mark, the events that we find uh, that are taking place in chapters 2 and 3 occur more than a year into Jesus' ministry. So for more than a year, Jesus has been teaching truth on how to understand God and his kingdom. For more than a year, Jesus has been working miracles. For more than a year, Jesus' fame and reputation have been growing. No wonder then that the crowds coming to hear and see Jesus were also growing. Earlier in chapter 3, the Bible tells us Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea with a great, with, and a great crowd followed. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So great crowds were flocking to see Jesus. But that also meant that Jesus was becoming a greater threat to the religious authorities at that time. And over the last two chapters, we see this growing conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities. In chapter 2, Jesus healed a paralytic man who was lowered down through the roof, and the scribes questioned why Jesus had told the man that his sins were forgiven. Then Jesus ate dinner at Levi's house along with some tax collectors and sinners. And the Pharisees were upset that he was associating with such people. Then the Pharisees questioned why Jesus and his disciples weren't fasting as often as everyone else was fasting. 
Then they questioned why Jesus and his disciples seemed to violate the Sabbath laws by plucking grain and healing on the Sabbath. See, people were flocking to Jesus and therefore his impact and influence over these people became an issue to the religious authorities. Not only were the crowds growing, but also the religious authorities' concerns about Jesus were growing as well. And so that takes us to this first scene. Jesus had called his disciples and verse 20 tells us he went home. At this time, Jesus had established Capernaum as his primary city of residence whenever he was in the region of Galilee. So the word home here refers to Capernaum and not Nazareth. So Jesus returns to Capernaum and the crowds followed him, of course. And the Bible tells us the crowds demanded so much of his time and attention that he and his disciples barely had time for rest and meals. So when Jesus's family in Nazareth heard that Jesus was back in Capernaum, they traveled to, to him. And verse 21 tells us his family came to seize him. Other translations say take hold of him or take custody of him. And you might ask why? Well, they were worried he was out of his mind. Now, we hear that phrase, out of his mind, and we immediately think insane or crazy. But when you read other translations, they say things like, he is beside himself, or he has lost his senses. And I think that's much more along the lines of what was going through his family's minds at that time. His family was concerned that Jesus was not thinking clearly enough about his own well-being, that he wasn't eating right, he was, he was overworking himself, wasn't getting enough rest, so they came to reason with him, likely with the intent of convincing him to come back to Nazareth to rest and to have a little R&R. So Jesus's family and friends were one group of people who had come to see Jesus in Capernaum. There was a second group, however, and that's the religious authorities from Jerusalem. Verse 22 tells us that scribes from Jerusalem had also come to see him, but they weren't there to see about his well-being. No, they were there to accuse him. Scribes were experts in the Mosaic law, and some scribes were also Pharisees. So the people who had come up from Jerusalem were religious authorities who had knowledge and concerns about the law. They had come to confront Jesus about his recent exorcism of a demon-possessed man. Now, the events of this scene are also told in Matthew chapter 12, and this scene plays out in Matthew with an additional detail. The Bible says, then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of David but when the Pharisees heard it they said it is only by Beelzebul the prince of demons that this man cast out demons so Mark leaves out the exorcism of this demon possessed man but that's the incident that has drawn the attention of the scribes so again, in context, we have Jesus more than a year into his ministry. He's teaching truth. He's drawing crowds of people. He's performing miracles. And then Jesus supernaturally exercises a demon from this possessed man. And the reaction of the religious authorities to all of this, the reaction was to claim that the exorcism wasn't from God in any way, but rather that Jesus had exercised the demon using the power of the devil himself, Beelzebub. And even more, their underlying implication was, was that everything Jesus had been doing, the teaching, the healing, had been, he had been doing, was, it was a work of the devil and not a work of God. They saw Jesus' power and ministry that appeared to everyone else 
to be clearly divine and good, and they condemned it and instead accused it of being satanic and evil. Jesus responded to their accusations in two ways. The first way was to point out the logical flaws in their reasoning. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus points out, point, Jesus's point was that an exorcism that casts out a demon cannot be done through dem- demonic power. It is illogical for Satan to be working against himself, a kingdom or house divided. Therefore, Jesus could not possibly be casting out demons by the power of demons because the devil would not work against himself. Logical flaw number one. Secondly, Jesus pointed out, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may, bl- then indeed he may plunder his house. The point Jesus was making here was that Jesus kicking out a demon from a possessed man was analogous to Jesus entering a strong man's house and kicking him out. It implied that Jesus was stronger than the strong man, or in the case of the exorcism, stronger than Satan. So it was illogical for Jesus to be working under Satan's power if Jesus was stronger than Satan. Logical flaw number two. And then now Mark leaves out this third logical point that Jesus made in response to his accusation, but Matthew recorded it, and it's an important one for us to consider this morning. In Matthew 12, Jesus also responded by saying, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus pointed his miraculous works back at the religious authorities and questioned them as to who normally received the credit when supernatural miracles happen. In other words, if all supernatural work was from the devil, then so too would any supernatural work from the Pharisees be from the devil. But if the religious authorities routinely attributed miraculous works to the Spirit of God, then so too should they attribute Jesus's miraculous works to be the Spirit from the Spirit of God. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus asked people to judge him based on what he was doing in and for people. For example, in John chapter 5, Jesus told the Pharisees who were questioning him, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And then later the Pharisees asked Jesus to plainly answer the question as to whether or not he was the Messiah. And Jesus responded, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus routinely reminded people of the truth that was plain to see that the supernatural acts being displayed through Jesus in and for people could not possibly be anything other than divine in origin. So logical flaw number three. So the first way Jesus responded to their accusations was to point out the logical flaws in their reasoning. And the second response was this dire warning. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus warned the religious authorities about the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. Now, as I noted earlier, this is a tricky topic to explain. 
And there are four perspectives that theologians have put forth as a way to understand what is Jesus saying here. Two of these, I believe, we can quickly dismiss, but two of the other perspectives, I believe, have they both have merit. And so let's go through those. The first perspective is that the unpardonable sin is committing an egregious sin of any kind. That is, the unpardonable sin is doing something that's really, really bad. Not just bad, but really, really bad. Think along the lines of something like genocide. The argument some theologians have made is that there is a stark difference between the, in, the, in the depravity of heart and character between someone who's telling a little fib and someone who's committing mass murder. The latter position requires such a depth of total depravity of character and evilness of heart that forgiveness is out of the question. Other people try to explain the sheer magnitude of God's forgiveness by posing the hypothetical, if before he died, Hitler had repented of his sin and turned his life over to Jesus, then even the scope of Hitler's sin would be forgiven. Well, this particular viewpoint argues that such a hypothetical would never occur because of the kind of character and heart that would cause someone to carry out the kinds of atrocities and horrors committed by Hitler. They would never repent and seek forgiveness. Essentially, to get to this level of vile and egregious sin, a heart has reached a level of such hardness and forgiveness that forgiveness is impossible. Hence, committing egregious sins like mass murder are unpardonable. And I believe we can rule out this viewpoint for two reasons. First, we've seen egregious sins in the Bible that were committed and then forgiven. For example, King David coveted another man's wife. And then he committed adultery against that man's wife. And then he committed premeditated murder with that man. And David is considered a man after God's own heart, despite this litany of egregious sins. Secondly, we can rule out this perspective because it's inconsistent with Jesus's own words right here. Again, Jesus' specific words in reference to the unpardonable sin were, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. As egregious and as evil as even mass murder is, the Bible tells us that all sins will be forgiven. And not because God doesn't recognize the total depravity of some sins, but rather because of the scope and scale of God's grace and forgiveness. Charles Swindoll once said, God's forgiveness extends to the worst offenders and to anyone who wishes to receive it, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Even egregious sins can be forgiven. The only sin that is unpardonable, according to this text, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So while this first perspective appeals to us in that we want to believe that really, really bad sins won't be forgiven, such a perspective is inconsistent with Scripture. I think it also feeds into our pride, being able to say, well, yeah, I'm bad, but they're really bad. The second perspective is that the unpardonable sin is saying false things about the Holy Spirit. The logic goes something like this. If blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unpardonable and blasphemy means asserting false things about God, then logically the unpardonable sin is saying false things about the Holy Spirit. Some of the early church leaders took this view. For example, Cyril of Jerusalem wrote, a man must often fear to say either from ignorance or assumed reverence 
what is improper about the Holy Spirit and thereby come under this condemnation. In other words, don't say anything about the Holy Spirit because if you say something wrong, uh-oh. Since, since this sin is unpardonable, people should be super, super careful about saying anything about the Holy Spirit for fear of being condemned forever. The problem with this perspective is that it's too broad. It doesn't take into account intent. Many, many Christians have false or incomplete views about the Holy Spirit. In fact, Francis Chan wrote the book, Forgotten God, to address some of the improper ways Christians understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit. How many Christians, for example, have referred to the Holy Spirit as an it instead of a he before they learned about the Trinity and learned about the personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit? Would all Christians who have made that mistake be forever unpardoned because of that? Obviously not. So I think it's safe to say we can rule out this perspective as well. The third perspective is that the unpardonable sin is rejecting clear truths revealed by the Spirit about Jesus. Again, at the time of these verses, Jesus had been teaching remarkable truths, healing people miraculously, and demonstrating supernatural power. Moreover, people were growing deeper in their faith, growing closer to God, and believing in the Messiah. People were clearly being physically and spiritually transformed for the better. God's redemptive work in the world was abundantly clear to any reasonable or sane person. And yet, in the hardness of their heart and with their face set against believing in Jesus, no matter what the mounting evidence was saying about him being the Messiah, the religious authorities decisively rejected the clear evidence that the Holy Spirit had presented them about the person and work of Jesus. This is a sign of a deep hardness of heart, an unrepentant heart, And that unrepentance is what makes this sin unpardonable. In many sermons, we've used the analogy of a coin to describe the relationship between belief and repentance. They're both critical to a faith decision. Saving faith consists of believing in Jesus as the Son of God who died for our sin. That's one side of the coin. And also repenting and turning away from sin. That's the other side of the coin. Faith is believing in Jesus and repenting. In the case of the religious leaders here, they rejected Jesus instead of believing in him, and they had unrepentant hearts. Therefore, they had no saving faith, and therefore were unpardonable. In essence, this third perspective on on the unpardonable equates blasphemy against the Holy Spirit with unbelief. Billy Graham puts it this way, the sin of the religious leaders, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, was a refusal to accept the witness of the Holy Spirit to whom Jesus was and what he had come to do, and then submit their lives to him. To commit this sin, one must consciously, persistently, deliberately, and maliciously reject the testimony of the Spirit to the deity and saving power of the Lord Jesus. If a person keeps doing that until death, there is no hope of forgiveness and eternal life in heaven. So in this perspective, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit equals unbelief equals the unpardonable sin. And while certainly this perspective is consistent with our understanding that the only way to receive eternal life is through belief in the Lord Jesus, the critique against this perspective is that if Jesus meant unbelief, he would have simply said unbelief. On many occasions, Jesus was clear about the consequences of unbelief. 
For example, in John 3, Jesus said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus often spoke about unbelief, but this is the only place where he talked about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So if blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is unbelief, wouldn't Jesus have used that term more often? The fact that this specific phrase is only mentioned once potentially implies that it is some unique and distinct uh, sin different from unbelief. And then that leaves us with this final perspective, which is that the unpardonable sin describes the specific event of the nation of Israel's rejection of Jesus as Messiah. This is often called the dispensational view on the unpardonable sin. And honestly, Tom, making me talk about dispensationalism should be the unpardonable sin, just saying. (laughs) As a church, uh, all of our doctrinal and teaching positions come from a dispensational perspective. So this fourth perspective that I'm talking about right now is certainly most in line with LC3's doctrinal framework. One central belief of this dispensational view is its view on the nation of Israel and the church where some theologians believe that the church has replaced Israel as God's chosen people, dispensationalism believes that the church is separate from the nation of Israel and that God still has plans and purposes for Israel. Here's why that's important. This fourth perspective on the unpardonable sin holds that the unpardonable sin is applicable only to the religious authorities at that time. Specifically, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was personally witnessing Jesus perform miracles when he was here on earth and then attributing those miracles and his ministry to the work of the devil and rejecting him as Messiah. And it was seen as indicative of the nation of Israel rejecting the Messiah during that generation. Professor Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost put it this way, and I quote, it is evident that this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could only be committed while Christ was personally present on earth. The sin could only be committed when the nation was being given evidence as to the person of Christ through the miracles which he performed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ was warning that generation in Israel that if they rejected the Father's testimony and the Spirit's testimony to his person and his work, their sins would stand unforgiven and result in temporal judgment on that generation, end quote. In essence, the unpardonable sin was a unique sin applicable only to the religious authorities at that time in history when the nation of Israel rejected Christ as Messiah. This perspective provides us with a level of comfort in that it assures us that the unpardonable sin is not a sin that can be committed by anyone today. It's a sin specific to a particular people, place, and time. But that also leads us to the one critique of this perspective, which is that Jesus often spoke directly to the religious authorities of that time. And we assume in every other instance when he does so that his words are still relevant to followers of Jesus today. So when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, we believe that his warning against hypocrisy applies to us today. When Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their legalism, we believe that the warning against legalism applies to us today. 
So why would we assume this warning about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit would only apply to that generation of Pharisees and not to us today? It feels like an arbitrary interpretation to separate this sin as unique to history. So where does that leave us? Here's a few thoughts for you to consider. First, I think it would be reasonable to hold either of that third or fourth perspective on the unpardonable sin as a way to understand this tricky passage. There are certainly things that we have only one definitive position. Uh, For instance, we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, and we are explicitly clear on that position. But there are topics like this one that we are comfortable presenting multiple perspectives and then allowing spiritually mature Christians to land in different places or having different points of view on it. Second thing is I think we should come away understanding the seriousness of rejecting clear truths about Jesus. There exists a sin that is so, so serious that Jesus himself declared it unforgivable. That alone should cause us to take this seriously. And we should be careful about what we say and believe about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, and something I want to spend just a few minutes exploring, is why this idea of the unpardonable sin causes so much angst in Christians. And I think it does so for two main reasons. The first is it forces us to reevaluate what we think and believe about God. Think about it. Whenever we talk about God, whenever we talk about Jesus, we talk about his his forgiveness. Even on Good Friday last week, we talked about the power of the cross to atone for all sins. That because of the cross, we have complete forgiveness for anything and everything we've ever done. Our basic understanding of God is that he is a forgiving God that he forgives in ways we cannot possibly comprehend. And the depth of his grace and forgiveness is such that even the worst of our sins can be accounted for. And so this idea that there is one sin that won't be forgiven, it causes us to revisit what we believe about the very nature of God's forgiveness and the very nature of God for that matter. It causes us to consider whether there are limits to his forgiveness and that causes us angst. It's kind of like when you say God can't. God can't what? There's nothing God can't. And so we, we get confronted with that here in this idea of forgiveness. My response to that angst would simply to be to say that Jesus' words are clear that all sins are forgiven except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. All sin. The fact that God has singled out only one sin as unforgivable should not cause us angst because even in singling out this one sin, Jesus reassures us that all other sins are accounted for, still forgivable. The depths of God's forgiveness and grace are still vastly deeper and wider than we can possibly comprehend. And secondly, this topic causes us angst because many, if not most of us, at one time or another, have wondered in our heart of hearts whether God would forgive them because of some sin they have committed. I've heard many testimonies of people's faith journeys over the year and many testimonies related points in people's lives where they struggled coming to God because they just didn't believe God would ever forgive them for what they've done. He can't possibly know what I've done. As individuals, we know the depth of our own depravity. We are well familiar with our many sins, both egregious and otherwise. Many Christians still struggle with the weight of their sin and their shame and their guilt 
And so the topic of an unpardonable sin causes us angst as we remember our own failings, our own depravity. My response here too is to take comfort in Jesus' reassurance that all our sins have been taken care of at the cross of Calvary. Amen? And we need to, we need not continue to wallow in the devil's accusations of our worthlessness, but instead trust in God's incomprehensible level of grace and forgiveness. I love this. Worship pastor and Christian musician Ricardo Sanchez said, the devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. God knows your sin, but he calls you by your name. The Bible says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Think about that. As far as the east is from the west. If you head east, how far do you have to go before you finally are heading west? Keep going, right? God's forgiveness runs deep. We need not worry about our own failings. We need, need only remember God's redemptive power over our failings. And now we come to this last scene in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 34. We read this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. After giving the religious authorities the most dire of warnings, Jesus was still teaching to this crowd of people inside of a building. And his family finally arrives, but there must not have been any space in this building because they were outside with the rest of the crowd. And it seems as if Jesus paid them no attention. So the crowds assume that Jesus must not have seen his family arrive. Otherwise, he certainly would have gone to them and hugged them and kissed them and offered up proper greetings. In fact, to not do so would have been a huge cultural faux pas. But after being alerted of the presence of his family, instead of offering up any greetings, Jesus remained where he was to teach the crowds an important lesson. And it's this, that our bonds as God's people, our spiritual bonds with one another as followers of Christ are as important as our biological bonds. I call that a teachable moment. And of course, it reminds me of football. (laughs) See, when I'm coaching football, I can yell at players till I'm blue in the face and oftentimes they won't get what I'm saying. You know, if a player is late to practice every day and I yell at him because he's late to practice every day, that's one thing. But if he shows up late to practice and I put him on the line and make him run for the rest of practice, that's a teachable moment. And Jesus here is using a teachable moment to teach his listeners an important message. You have to understand that this statement that Jesus is making, this is a radical statement. Because in biblical times, family was the most important unit of relationship. Much of the Mosaic law was built on the importance of family relationships. For example, the Mosaic laws around property rights or inheritance rights were based on family relationships. Even in the Ten Commandments, we have a command to honor our father and mother. So embedded in the very Ten Commandments is this institution of family, because family is everything. 
So when Jesus included everyone who was listening to his teachings, including every, any and every person who wanted to live a life in obedience to God's laws, when Jesus made this inclusive statement that all of his followers were like family, he was making a radical statement that would have shocked those that were listening. Back then, temple life was an important part of their culture for sure. I mean, being part of the local synagogue was expected of every God-fearing Jew. And certainly, deep relationships could be and were built within that faith community of the synagogue. But at the end of the day, the family still had priority and primacy over that faith community. But Jesus was saying that was incorrect. Instead, he made the point in this teachable moment that the primacy of the faith community, so for us today, that would be our church community, that the primacy of the faith community ought to be on the same level as that of the biological family. That was a shocking statement back then. And in many ways, it's a shocking statement to us today. I can tell you growing up as a Samoan in a Samoan culture, that is a shocking statement to make. How many of us treat others within our church on the same level of importance and intimacy as others within our own families? The early church certainly understood this teaching. After Jesus' ascension into heaven, as the early church grew and expanded, we see this concept fully lived out. The book of Acts describes the lived experience of the early church. That famous verse from Acts 2:42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which speaks to a deep and intimate, like-minded connection between people. It connotes a group of people unified in purpose. The early church recognized that their spiritual relationships with each other were every bit as important as family bonds, and so they lived with each other. They ate with each other. They fellowshiped with each, with each other. In essence, they treated each other as the family that they were. That is the church, a group of people who are deeply relational, intimately connected, like-minded and unified in the purpose of bringing glory to Jesus Christ. The church is family. See, church was never meant to be casual. Church is not meant to be a place where an individual can stop in whenever he or she feels like it. Church is not meant to be a place where you sit for an hour every weekend and then quickly leave to return to your real life. Changing churches is not meant to be as easy as changing your favorite NFL team or fantasy football player. Too many people have a casual relationship with church. Jesus' words here in Mark chapter 3 ought to wake us up to the reality that we are to be as engaged in our church family as we would be in any other significant relationship we have in our lives. How the church ought to engage with each other deserves its own entire sermon, and we will have that later on this year during the annual Vision Sermon Series when we talk about loving others, which is a key part of our vision statement. But my challenge to you today is simply to understand the importance of being engaged with the church family. Our bonds with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ are to be as intimate and as important as those of our biological family. So where do we go from here? A few next steps. First, I will trust in God's wisdom instead of my own. See, 
Our selfishness and our pride demands perfect knowledge of everything. Immature Christians come upon passages in Scripture they don't understand and it causes them to doubt its accuracy or question the character of God. Mature Christians recognize that an infinite God is impossible to fully comprehend with our finite minds. And when they come upon something in Scripture they don't understand, they recognize their own limitations and continue to trust in God and His words. Martin Luther wrote, I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things pass away, his word shall stand forever. Let's trust in him and in his word, no matter how difficult a passage might be. Secondly, I will engage in my church family. God's people are family. Our bonds as brothers and sisters in Christ are eternal ones. To fully experience what God has in store for us as his followers, we need to experience the life of the church community more fully. We're not simply here to uh, quickly attend one service each weekend. No, we are to worship together, to serve together, to abide in small groups together, and to fellowship together. If you've kept the church family at arm's length, you're missing out on what God has in store for you. Look, if you're new to our church community or newish, uh, or even if you're a longtime attendee, but you have a desire to be more fully engaged in the life of Lake City, we are kicking off an exciting new ministry this weekend. In fact, it'll happen right when this is over uh, downstairs, starting about 1230. It's called Starting Point. And uh, Starting Point is an opportunity for you to interact, ask questions about LC3, In addition, you're going to hear more about who we are, a little bit of our DNA. It's a place where you'll meet some of the pastors and and, uh, staff. You can learn about some of the different ways that you can formally and informally connect with our church community. If you're new to our church or you just want an opportunity to dive more fully into LC3 as a church family, then please consider joining us. We'll have a little sandwich for you to hold you over till you get home. We'd love for you to come join us. If you're not new to Lake City, and if you're already familiar with the many ways to connect with others in the church body, but you just haven't taken that step to do so, there is no better time. There's no better time than right now to fully engage with the church community. You you can still join a small group. Many of our ministries still need volunteers. Now's the time to commit yourself to giving your church the same level of, of importance that Jesus tells us here that we need to. Just, if you would, contact the church office, contact one of the pastors or or ministry leaders. Just mark it on your communications card if you want. Just get started on that path. And then lastly, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, maybe you're one of those people who struggle with coming to God because you don't think he will forgive you for what you've done. This next step is for you. And it's simply this, I will seek forgiveness by accepting Christ as my Savior. Listen, You're never beyond God's reach or forgiveness, ever. Annie Lobert struggled during the early years of her life with her self-esteem, feeling like she was unlovable. That led to a deep-seated need to seek approval of others, particularly men, which then led her to a life of drugs and prostitution. This life did not bring her, her the approval that she sought. It only enhanced her feelings that she was beyond redemption. 
One day she overdosed on drugs and as she felt her body begin to fail, she had this vision of her family at her funeral just shaking their heads and saying she was just a prostitute. And in the depth of that despair, she cried out to Jesus, Jesus, please save me. She awoke in a hospital with a doctor telling her, you are lucky to be alive. You have so much drugs in your system. Little lady, you should be dead. God must be with you. She committed her life to Jesus at that moment and walked away from a life of sin and guilt and shame. Lobert said, seriously, God loves me. After all I've done, you are never too lost that God cannot reach you. God loves you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how deep, how dirty you feel, there's redemption. You are white as snow when you accept him in your heart. Now, Paul's going to just play a special song for us, and then I'll be back up to close this with prayer. Oh, God. 
God's people all the way to all our evil. Lift it away forever free. Who could believe? Who could believe? Forgiven. Forgiven. You love me. Appreciate you, brother. Did you hear that? Those words, forgiven, forgiven. Say goodbye to every sin. You are forgiven. That's the great truth of the Bible. Amen? The great truth of the gospel. The Bible says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Listen, you are never beyond redemption. You have complete forgiveness for all your sins if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Find your redemption today. Give your life to Jesus today and see where that leads you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we love you. And we are so grateful that we are forgiven because of what you did on the cross of Calvary. Thank you that you were willing, the perfect lamb, to go to the cross in our place that we could stand here forgiven, right with God because of you. And Lord, if there's anyone here that has not made that decision, God, I pray this would be the day that they would recognize their need for a savior, that they would recognize that you are the Messiah, that you are the son of God and that they would make the decision to repent, to turn their back on what was before and turn towards you and to say yes to you and the forgiveness that you offer us because of what you did on the cross. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the church. Thank you for this church. Thank you for brothers and sisters that love you, that love one another and that are like-minded with a common vision to spread the gospel of Jesus. Thank you. And God, I just pray your blessing now on each one of us, both here and listening online, God, that your blessing would go with each one of us as we head into the rest of our day, the rest of our week, and we'll give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.